back to Skip to the Lou. I am Lacey Lou, and today I am joined by author Jim Harberson. What's up, Jim? Hey, how are you? I'm great. Um, now, you just had a book come out, um, A Disgusting Supermarket of Death. Now, how did you come up with the title of this anthology book? It's a quote uh, from one of the characters in in my story, hashtag like Me Too. Me yeah. Too, yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's a, it's a lawyer commenting on the bizarre and um, horrifying pastime uh, of his clients, so which is necrophilia. So well, we're just starting this episode right out with a bang, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, no. Now that's why it's disgusting. It, it is. It is. Um, no. Um, I don't do like a whole lot of book reviews, but um, when I was talking to you um, on Twitter, um, I don't know, something just gravitated towards me, towards this book. Um, um, I'm a big lover of anthologies, and it sounded super, super interesting. And when um, you said you'd send the copy, I was like, awesome. Because um, I just feel like I can't do book reviews like justice. Um, but like many stories to where like you can break it up and, um, have a bunch of different things to talk about, I think is really cool and easier for me anyways. Thank you. And I, I, I really did enjoy the book. Now, um, before we get into it, um, you can tell, um, in some of the stories, actually you were, are a lawyer? I used to be. You yes. used to be. What kind of law did you practice if you don't mind me asking? I started out doing corporate law in Los Angeles corporate and some entertainment. And then I ended up doing criminal defense and civil rights. Um, and that, that was the bulk of my practice, those two things. So, and when I was doing criminal defense, I started learning a lot about, you know, bizarre things that started feeding my imagination to write horror. So, because you, you see some of the most terrible aspects of human life when you practice criminal defense law and civil rights law, frankly. So I, uh, I drew upon that, and I, I thought it would be fun to write horror stories that had a, sometimes a technical aspect to them. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, when you, it seems to me when you pair horrible, terrifying things with you know, a refined intellectual process, it becomes even more terrifying. So, you know, it's like people have thought this through, right? And so it's uh, it's not just something that's happening spontaneously. It requires premeditation, and not just premeditation, but, you know, a deliberative process. And one of the scariest things I've, I've witnessed is the way people use deliberative processes to render terrible outcomes and they think that the deliberative process somehow acquits them or uh, excuses the terrible outcome so it, it reminds me a little bit of the old expression uh, the, the operation was a success but the patient died so there's a way Stanley Milgram talks about this in his book Obedience to Authority there's a way that a very terrifying way people can hide behind processes and corporate structures often to you know uh you know acquit themselves of any apparent responsibility for terrible things happening so and that's more terrifying in some ways than say your your random psychopathic murderer or serial killer 
because you know it's uh, it's something that's uh, in some ways legally protected and that can happen under the happen under the radar. Whereas you know a, a psycho killer, for example, is something that immediately draws people's attention and is usually short lived or hopefully after that. Yeah, no, I am, like, so into, like, my favorite genre of film aside from, like, horror is anything courtroom setting, um, so I was even more fascinated to talk to you. Um, do you have, like, any strange cases, um, that you can talk about, or? Um, nothing, nothing that would, would fit into the horror genre. I guess that what I can say is that what I saw when I practiced law was often a kind of religious zeal or almost a religious zeal on the part of some prosecutors and even police to, you know, first they would dehumanize the suspect or the defendant, and then they would, you know, try to do everything they could to destroy this person's life. And there was, you know, there, the, the, this rectitude, this, this sense of moral righteousness is is terrifying, especially in a political context, because a political context is supposed to be intellectual, at least, or not a political, but a, within a context of political power. You, know, you don't want people with religious mania making decisions about what the law should be, and yet here we are. And I saw that, and I had, I remember I had a client once, I can tell you this story. I had a client who was had almost died while in jail. He had been bitten by a brown recluse spider. And you know what that is, right? Oh, my um, God. I actually got bit by a brown recluse spider earlier this year, and it took, like, yeah, so, six months to heal. It was crazy. Yeah, it's horrifying because yeah. the venom untreated gradually dissolves your flesh. And so my client had been bitten by a brown recluse, and he had a, he had a concurrent staph infection on his neck when you when i first met him when he showed up to court he was bright red and feverish and he'd already almost died oh my god and so i mentioned this to a green prosecutor um someone who i i assumed had just been hired fresh out of law school and the response i got was well that's why you don't go to jail you know and uh, the, the callous disregard of the human dignity of the person you know, who hadn't even been convicted of anything, not that that should matter, was, you know, I mean, that this, this shrug, shrugging the shoulders, you know, let's go on our happy way because we're happy warriors in this crusade. Really, you know, it was really troubling for me. So I, uh, you know, seeing that, I like to say that, you know, people ask me, how can you, how do you come up with all these horrible ideas? What's it like to be inside your head? And... Actually, I have a friend who's a professor at a Baptist university in Tennessee. He teaches political science, and he said he feared for my soul. And I replied that, you know, the things I've seen in the real world are so much more terrible than the things that I've written about that it's not even funny, you know. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, I'm just writing fiction, and I'm trying to channel some of the some of the negative energy I've absorbed into something productive. So, um, and I absorbed a lot of negative negative energy when I was a criminal defense attorney because I was in a jurisdiction that 
basically wanted to dispense, you know, to, to have people provide an appearance of representation without actually doing anything really aggressive to protect people. So. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, like, the world is a really scary place. I prefer my scares to be more in fiction, so, um, you know, I being right. a lover of uh, the horror genre, I've had several people say to me, how can you read or watch that stuff? I Like, if I turn on the news, I get more freaked out than reading a book or watching a movie. Oh, yeah, well, I think that, I think two things. First of all, if somebody asks, how can you, how can you watch that, my res- first response should be, how can you not? Right. You know, because I love it so much. But also, I think it it enables you. I'm, I'm reminded of a, you know, who Jerry Garcia was the lead guitarist of the Grateful Dead. Yes. Um, well, he was a heroin addict, unfortunately. And somebody asked him once why he did heroin, and he said because it it, it took all the problems in his life, everything he worried over, and put them in a little box and made it seem manageable. And I think that. Horror movies do that for people's fears about all kinds of things in life. They they take your fears and they consolidate them in a in a digestible uh, form and allow you to focus on them in a way that you have control over. I think there's a therapeutic aspect to watching horror. So, um, and it, it it makes the scary more palatable somehow, and and in that way it's kind of healthy, you know. I'm not saying it's healthy for people to watch horror movies to get ideas about what terrible things they want to do to other people, but if it helps you cope with the terrible things you have to deal with in reality or in your life, then, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I've just always been really fascinated by it. Um, it's not something that I watch. Like, I remember back in, God, what year was it? I think, like, 2001, I want to say, was was that Columbine around that time? Um, 1999. Um, I remember the movie Scream 3 was about to come out, um, and they had to change... Scream 3 came out, I think, in 2001, and that's probably why I referenced that. Um, but I remember they were blaming, um, you know, video games and horror movies on that. Um, they said that that had a lot to do with the responsibility because of the type of games and movies that these kids watched and I just and that's why Scream 3 I believe is so watered down compared to the first two films and I just I I don't get it I don't see how it's that influential I wrote a paper once about the there was a there was a craze in the 1950s during the McCarthy era uh, that was there was a fear that comic books especially crime and horror comics were were inciting juvenile delinquency. And there were actually Senate hearings. There was this senator, U.S. senator from Tennessee named Estes Kefauver, who had hearings in the Senate about, you know, the propensity of horror and crime comics to contribute to juvenile delinquency. And there was this crackpot psychiatrist or psychologist, I can't remember which, named Frederick Wortham, who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent in which he, he tried to, in psychoanalytic terms, demonstrate how comic books turned children into juvenile delinquents. And he even at one point said that Superman was Nietzsche's um, Ubermenschen, or Ubermensch, rather. And, you know, the, the whole thing is laughable now, but it's a 
phenomenon that repeats itself. I mean, in the 1980s, people tried to blame, I think it was Judas Priest, uh, for the suicide of one of its fans. And it actually went to court, and and, and the, the plaintiff lost, but it's still... Americans have a tendency to want to do two things when, when something horrible happens. They either want to blame somebody else and or they want to give meaning to things, you know, that sometimes just bad things happen and, you know, you can't explain it. But Americans can't, in my experience, deal with that. They have to have, they either have to blame somebody or they have to come up with, make some good come of this, right? So I remember years ago, it was almost 20 years ago, I read a story about a woman whose toddler had died. It had, it had slipped out of the house and drowned in a neighbor's unfenced pool. And so she went on a crusade saying that Jesus took my baby away from me so that I would go on this pool, this crusade to make, to pass a state law to make every single pool owner fence their pool. And then she was demanding that officers of the state have the right to do warrantless searches of people's homes in order to make sure, or their yards, to make sure that uh, they were at fenced pools. And the whole thing was just sadly driven by her inability to deal with the fact that sometimes bad things happen. You know, that you can't, you can't control that. But yeah, I mean, it, it video games, it, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, you know, there's always, somebody's always looking for some kind of scapegoat to avoid the fact that sometimes people, for whatever reason, do terrible things, right? 100%. And you, could, you could argue that there are some people who should not be exposed to certain content, but you really want to live in a society that has a prior restraint process that filters all media through some kind of safety committee. You know, no, you don't. I mean, if you believe in freedom, if you believe in enlightenment values, then you let people speak, right? And it's up to the parents to deal with it. And, you know, occasionally a terrible person will be inspired to do something terrible, and I, I guess that, you know, I'm not going to deny that, but, you know, I'm not sure that the that the solution to that, the solution to that is probably even worse than the cure, or the solution is rather worse than the, the disease. So, you know, I, I, I guess that, that at the end of the day, most people are not influenced by these things. I mean, they might like them and they might participate playing the games, watching the movies, reading the comic books. But I think if you, if you look at data, most kids never do anything like this. You know, some of them do, but most of them don't. And like I said, I'm hard pressed to think that you should censor people's free expression because one person out of a million is going to do something terrible with it. Right. And I think that's where the phrase one bad uh, one bad apple spoils a bunch or something like that. <laughs> right. I mean, there are lots of works of classical literature people want to ban because, you know, there's smutty content or foul language or what have you, and they're, they're afraid of exposing young people to that, you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, once you go down this road, you get to a very dark place where, you know, you want to control everything that might enter somebody's mind. And control everybody who might utter or publish something that would would do that, and it, it leads to totalitarianism. So, 
And that's the ultimate scary thing because it allows people in the in the in the uh, interest of quote unquote doing the right thing or doing the good or achieving utopia to start shooting people in the back of the head into ditches they've dug, you know, yeah. beforehand. You know, it just leads to horrible mass murders and you know, you tell I. I tend to be very skeptical of any attempt to realize any kind of utopia because I just think that it, it gives people it gives people an opportunity to do terrible things. So as Christopher Hitchens said once of religion that religion allows good people to do bad things and I think that there's a, a lot of truth in that. So I was actually just watching um, the show on Paramount Plus called Why Women Kill. And it's yes. funny because the episode that uh, I just watched, um, she was going to, uh, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but uh, one of the characters wants to do something to her enemy um, because to get back at her and she actually quotes Proverbs and so, it, you know, to justify her actions. Oh yeah, the Bible is, a, is really a mixed bag of collection of wildly different texts and you know because of that because it's such a it's such a cornucopia of different ideas and stories you can find you can find all kinds of justification for things i mean think about passover you know think about what happens in passover the angel of death swoops over egypt and kills the firstborn of every single you know egyptian family and the 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 israelites escape this by putting lamb's blood on their doorposts or there's the there's the slaughter of the Midianites in which the God of Israel uh, demands that the Israelis the Israelites slaughter an entire civilization of people known as the Midianites and then gets upset when they don't slaughter all of them, you know, and that that was translated. I don't know if, if this was the text that was used specifically, but back in the Middle Ages, the uh, there was a pope who ordered the execution of a heretical community of Christians in France known as the Cathars. And he sent troops there to wipe every one of them out, including the children. And his diary or official you know, record book still exists. And I guess he said this was a great day for Christendom, right? Yeah. So I read a book a few years ago by two intellectual historians at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, um, about witch persecutions in the West from 700 to, you know, from 400 to 1700 AD. And it's just, it's a collection of original sources and translation. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying because what, what the church did in in coordination with the civil authorities was come up with a process in which they would, in which people could be accused of witchcraft and with no evidence be tortured into confessing and then executed. Um, and everybody thought they were, you know, doing the Lord's work. And that's the, you know, that, that the two most terrifying things that can happen is somebody can become convinced of their own moral rectitude, and then they can plug into a system of like-minded people and start going about to save the world. And, you know, Americans are, Americans love to do that. Right. Joe Macon said that, the American disease was wanting to to help your fellow man by force if necessary, you know. So, and that's one of the things that 
that drives some of my writing, this idea that that people will try to pursue a try to pursue a, a noble goal and end up doing terrible things trying to get to it. So Yeah, I wanna go back a little bit. Um you did mention comics. Um now I noticed um that some of the comics that you read when you were younger were Tales from the Crypt. And I just thought that was so cool because that's where I started as well. Um, My grandpa had like this whole box of comic books and I went through and just pulled out like all of these old first edition Tales from the Crypts. Uh, Like this had to be, yeah. And um, if I had known anything at that time, like I think he ended up selling them all like in a garage sale. And if I had known anything when I was younger about what they would mean to me, I definitely would have made him give them to me instead of selling them. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I read them. I first read them when I was 13, and it was like, where have you been all my life? You know? And it, it was like a perfect storm of my of my development as a fan of horror and, you know, uh, having opportunity to read them because they were in reprint editions by that point. And I just... You know, it, it was just magnificent because it was it was horror, but it was funny, it was ironic, and it was no holds bar. You know, I mean, it's one of the reasons Estes Kefauver had hearings, and the Comics Code Authority was created in 1955. In fact, the paper I wrote about the the, the comic, the, the fear mongers about comic books and juvenile delinquency, I interviewed for it. Bill Gaines, the guy who created all the EC comics, including Tales from the Crypt and Mad Magazine, at his offices in Mad Magazine in, in Manhattan in 1990. And it was, gave me an hour and a half of his time. It was fantastic. That's amazing. You know? yeah, he was, you know, he's a living legend. So, and he, I think he and several of his staff members at one point were actually arrested for violating decency or obscenity laws simply for publishing these comics, which nowadays, for the most part, are pretty tame. So, in fact, that, that for Panic, Panic Magazine, they had two humor magazines, Mad, which became, or comics, Mad, which became a magazine, and Panic, which, you know, was, I guess, folded into Mad. And in one of the Panic comics, they did a send-up of Clement Moore's Twas the Night Before Christmas. And... It was, it was so over the top. It showed Santa Claus as like, you know, a drunken idiot, and all these other wonderful things. You know, basically taking all of the, all of the, gauche fantasies people have about Christmas, the commercialization of Christmas, like right. Santa Claus and presents and trees, and they they, they thoroughly uh, parodied and trashed them, and it's it's a masterpiece of satire. And I guess that this comic was banned in the city of Boston because it was so offensive to Christians. Um, you know that when you're getting banned for satire, you're doing something right. So. Yeah, you're definitely hitting a point. <laughs> well, satire is the most effective form, in my opinion, of, of political persuasion because most people, in my experience don't function, you know, logically, intellectually. They function primarily emotionally. And laughter is a much more 
direct and effective way to get to them than you know laying out some argument with with conclusions and premises didactically. Some people prefer that, and I used to do that for a living as a lawyer. But by and large, I think most people you can get you can much, get much further with a laugh or a joke than you can with you know hundreds of pages of argument. So, and that's what the people at EC Comics realized. And in, in fact, they were one of it was uh, when they were this was when they when they were under attack from different groups and the government. This was, like I said, during the McCarthy era, the Red Scare. They actually started running ads in their comics defending what they were doing and saying, are you a red dupe? In part, I think, because essentially what the government was doing in the interest of rooting out alleged communists was as totalitarian as, you know, what the Soviet Union was actually doing. You know, suppressing people who thought differently in the interest of maintaining political power. So, you know. That's a, that's, I didn't know any of that, so that's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Just if you Google DC Comics, are you a red dupe? Um, this is based on my memory. I might be wrong about their reasoning, but I think, I, I think I'm right. If you just look it up, you can find it. I'm sure it's in Google Images, and it's a lot of fun, but it's also serious. Right. So, my dad told me a story once about he was in he was in boarding school in the 1950s and he wasn't allowed to put anything on his walls. It was very austere, and this was in the United States in Massachusetts. And he came across this collection of anti-communist trading cards, like baseball cards, like heroes of anti-communism or whatever. And so he put them up on his wall. And one of his teachers confronted him about this, or his corridor master in his door, and said, you can't put stuff on your walls. And my father said, well, this, these are anti-communist trading cards, Mr. So-and-so. And the guy was so terrified that he might be called a communist, that he said, oh, you can keep them then. You know? <laughs> I mean, think about that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I like horror, because horror, you know, horror takes sort of caricaturish human, you know, human evil. And in its, in it, in its best expression, it, it allows you to be entertained by it, but also maybe to learn from it. I'm not a huge fan of horror that just exists for its own sake because the world is terrifying enough. I prefer horror that's mixed with humor. Um, so my two favorite movies, horror movies, for example, are... Return of the Living Dead from 1985 and Reanimator also from 1985. Um, and I generally don't like, I mean, I, I'm somewhat entertained by them, but I'm not ultimately moved to want to see them again. You know, the, the torture porn movies. I mean, sometimes they can be interesting, but simply showing a scene in which someone is hacked to death with no greater context isn't that interesting to me. So... And it might be interesting once if you see it for the first time, like the, the scene in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre where Leatherface just comes out of this abattoir and hits this person on the head with a claw hammer and drags them back into the abattoir. You know, that was really effective. But in part because here's this Leatherface guy 
and what is this abattoir, and what's all this other stuff? Um, so it really depends. I mean, violence for the sake of violence, you know, it's just not that interesting. Um, well, you actually um, sent me a few of uh, your favorite films, and a couple of them stood out to me um, that I wanted to ask yeah. you questions about. Um, sure. One of my personal, my favorite out of all the Halloween movies is Halloween 2, 1981. Um, yes. So I always find it, um, it always makes me really happy and excited to see that it's somebody else's as well, and, and that the original Hall- Halloween isn't put before it. Um, now, I mean, that's not the same. It, it's magnificent. I mean, it's uh, it, as a kid, this was the thing that I watched that I sort of, I realized I was a real horror fan. You know, I think it's much more entertaining than the first movie. Same. The much first more. one, it's a lot slower paced, a lot more stalking. Um, and you still get that in this, but it's a lot more fast paced. You get more context. And um, I, I am always like a really big advocate for Ben, ben Tramer. like justice for ben tramer um i'm hoping that in these next sequels he gets mentioned or brought up again or something (laughs) i don't know um because technically i guess in that timeline he wouldn't have died um because they just skipped over part two and i'm like ah um do you like the aspect of the sibling relationship um between laurie and michael i guess that it doesn't really matter, right? Because I never really explain why Michael wants to kill his siblings. I mean, it, it matters to the extent that that's why he's chosen Lori to be his victim. But you never really get any backstory, and that's one of the you know you could say it's a weakness, but it's also I think it's more of a strength because you know it's it's something that Rob Zombie examines in his remake of Halloween from two thousand seven when you know. Uh, Dr. Loomis, played by Malcolm McDowell, tries very hard to get into Michael to understand what he's doing, why he does what he does, and eventually despairs of Michael because he said that there's just nothing there but the will to destroy and kill. Right. You know? And I guess you could you can interpret it as Michael's targeting his sisters because there's a kind of self-loathing there that he expresses by killing people who are like him, at least in a familial sense. But I don't know, I'm not sure it was ever explained, and that that's part of the appeal, you know. He just does it, he has the, the blackest eyes, there's nothing left, right? Right, Pure he has no soul. Right. right. No humanity, yeah. I guess, like, right. yeah. So it's always less scary when you're able to come up with some kind of, uh, some kind of explanation, like a, a childhood abuse or something, as to why something somebody does something terrible. It's scarier when you know you don't know, right? Yeah, like it's like a quote from Scream. Uh, they say it's a lot more scary when there is no motive. Yeah. In fact, I think that I don't know if you read Thomas Harris' novel Hannibal or saw I, the movie. I was going to bring that up next. <laughs> okay, but in in some ways, that makes Hannibal Lecter a little less scary because now you know why he's a cannibal because he was unwittingly eating his sister right right and it might be scarier if you just didn't know why he did this you know that he was just sort of this apex predator and he just ate people because he could so yeah we there was a show i i love to used to watch called criminal minds and 
at the end of every episode, they were able to come up with an explanation as to why this person was doing these terrible things. It's, it was almost universally, oh, terrible things happened to this person, and this person is perpetuating the terror that was visited upon them in childhood. And in some ways, that feels like a cop-out. I mean, I think that in the vast majority of cases, I don't know if you listened to the last podcast on the left, mm-hmm. but the, the podcasters have identified, and, you know, they, they weren't the first, but they, they illustrate in all of their serial killer episodes that there are, there are certain things that typically happen to serial killers that, you know, cause them to be this way, like head trauma, for example. And when you can explain it, it just seems to me it's less interesting, less terrifying. Not that the acts are any less interesting or terrifying, but that the source of them, the idea, if you can predict it, it's just less terrible. So, I don't know if you read my graphic novel. I think I might have, I don't know, if, did I send it to you? Um, um, I just have the disgust, a, soup, a Disgusting Supermarket of Death. Oh, well, I will send you a copy of it. Oh, okay. Um, but... The premise in that is that there is a website called youkill.com in which anybody, anywhere can nominate anyone else to be murdered for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. And the purveyors of the website submit every nominee to to public vote. And whoever gets the most votes, they go out and murder this person. So, you know, and that this person is, they, they, you know, they never know where it's coming from and you know, they never know who's going to nominate who for what. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's a form of mob violence, mob justice, call it what you will, for this internet age. And you never know who's going like, to dislike you for whatever reason. And you never know if you're going to run into some insane person off his or her meds um, who just might push you in front of a train, right? Right. So you don't know it's coming. That makes it all the more terrifying. And I think in America we are, because our culture isn't that organic, it's more of a, it, it, it's, a it's, it's a creation of the Enlightenment, it's a creation of ideas. People don't necessarily know their neighbors, especially now, because everybody's from somewhere else. You know, they move around for economic opportunity. And this is something I discovered when I lived out west in California and Arizona, that you know, almost all the restaurants people go to are chain restaurants because people from somewhere else rely on the chain. They don't have any local knowledge, right? right. And they don't necessarily know their neighbors and they don't know who they're living next to. So, it, you know, it could be anybody. It could be some terrible person who is like John Wayne Gacy has an unlicensed mortuary, as he put it, in his basement. So, yeah, it is. Just never know. And I think that that, you know, that's another thread I like to examine in American life and in my horror stories. People just intensely, are intensely suspicious in many ways of, of their neighbors because they don't know. I mean, sometimes they do, but often they don't. You're going to ask me about Hannibal. Yes, I was, um, because I find it really fascinating. Uh, I keep using the word fascinating. I need to find a different uh, verb uh, to use, um, or adverb, sorry. <laughs> um, 
no, uh, it was surprising, I guess, um, to see it on the list because normally, uh, you know, you did have Silence in the Lambs prior to it, and then right next to it was Hannibal. Um, it wasn't Red Dragon, it wasn't Manhunter, it wasn't, you know, any of those. It was Hannibal, which, um, you know, I... I thought I put Manhunter on the list because that's my favorite you... of all of them. Maybe, maybe I was, when I was skimming, I don't know, Hannibal just stood out. So, yeah. um... Oh, I love that movie. Um, the, with the circle of people, um, you know, I met part of a lot of Facebook groups and online, uh, horror stuff, and that seems to get the most flack out of all of, uh, you know, the Hannibal series. Um, well, that's because people wanted it to be Silence of the Lambs again, and it couldn't be. Right. And I, I personally love Ray Liotta, so, <laughs> um, when he's eating... I think it's as good as Silence of the Lambs. Yeah? I really do. Yeah. Well, I think it gets a lot of flack, undeservedly. I think also, what happened was Jodie Foster read the novel, and the novel's outcome is very different from the movie. And she said, you know, in the in the novel, bad things happen to Clarice Starling. I won't spoil it, but it, the bad things that happen to her in the, in the novel do not happen to her in the movie. And so Jodie Foster didn't want to play the Clarice Starling who you know, to whom the bad things happen in the novel. And so that's why they had to go with... Julianne uh, Moore. Exactly. And I think people are upset about that. And they also, it was a 10, there was a 10-year span of time between Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. And I think that the same thing might have happened with that as happened with the, the Star Wars prequels, right? People see a movie... And they, if they love it, they tend to be nostalgic about it. And they form certain ideas and emotions around it. And then when something new comes along, even if it's just as good, it, because it's not perfectly con- congruent with what they think they saw before, they're disappointed. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I, I just thought that... I, I, I just thought it was magnificent, especially the climax where... Hannibal is feeding Paul Trendler, played by Ray Liotta, his own brain. Right. Now, that's like the apogee of, of funny horror for me. You're like, hmm, tastes good. <laughs> um, did you like the television show? Yes, I did. I haven't. I, I loved it. Uh, people, I, I have not. I watched like the first episode, but I haven't actually watched anything beyond that yet. Um. My it's schedule. very different. It's it's slow down. It's baroque, um, and it really kind of it, it 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 spends a lot of time in in itself in the site in the psychological weirdness of Hannibal Lecter in his world, and it's brilliantly written. And some people don't like that because it's it's more of a think piece horror thing instead of a a slasher horror thing, even though there's slashing that occurs, that I thought that, you know, I thought it was really well done. And the idea that, I'm not sure I agreed, I mean, they they made it work, Brian Fuller made it work. I'm not sure I agreed with the idea that Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham were actually, you know, that Will Graham had a crush on Hannibal. I mean, they made it work, but I think if I were to choose to do it, I would, I would keep it the way it is in Manhunter, an icy, difficult relationship that Will Graham wants to avoid at all costs, but goes back into in order to protect people. 
So, because I, I think that that adds to the horror of the thing. It, you know, because it, in the, uh, if, if, if Will Graham has a crush on Hannibal, it somehow, and he's the protagonist, I mean, it depends on what you find horrifying and what not. I mean, you could go either way. I mean, it, in one way, it's, it's like, oh, wow, the horror, the, the, the hero is in love with the, with the villain, right? Frank Miller did that in Batman the Dark Knight Returns. He made the, the Joker... It, the the indicate the implication was the Joker was actually in love with Batman, and I think that they made that more during the Batman Lego movie. They made that more uh, more express, or they expressed it much more clearly than it is in the uh, graphic novel. So it, it can work. I, I guess that my preference is for a Will Graham who is damaged and can't stand being near this terrible, murderous person, but chooses to do so as a kind of sacrifice to the greater good. Right. Because that's the other thing. If horror movies don't have at least a clear moral paradigm of sorts, good guy and a bad guy, I think that they dissolve into something that just isn't that interesting. So, I I prefer to have heroes and villains, even if the, the heroes don't survive. I, I think it makes it more interesting. It gives it a better dramatic architecture than something where everybody's just sort of gray. I mean, that's more like film noir with a slasher element or something. So Kind of like um, Peeping Tom? I'm trying to think if I saw that or not. Is that the one I'm thinking of? It, is Peeping Tom the first slasher? Um, oh, 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 are you thinking of the French film? No, um, God, it might be. No, you're right. There's an American film that came out in like 1950. I think it predates Psycho. Yeah, it's a, it's apparently the first. I think it's Peeping Tom. I want to say that it is. Um, I watched it for the first time like three years ago, and it's this guy is like a filmmaker, and there's not a whole lot of slashing going on, but um, I don't necessarily want to give you a spoiler if you haven't seen it. Um, no, that's fine. Just do whatever is best for the for the listener. <laughs> um, well, spoilers. Um, he the oh God. I'm trying to like remember exactly what happened, but I think he ends up like taking his own life, and so like you feel kind of sympathetic towards him, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. Which was it was kind of a weird way to end the film because I mean, you feel really sympathetic towards this killer. Um, I mean, he, I think he only killed, like, two women in the film, um, and then he, like, fell in love with someone, God, it was really long and drawn out, (laughs) um, um, I have recently gotten into watching, like, a lot of older films, uh, before, it just wasn't in my repertoire, and so I went back and I watched, um, a bunch of Hitchcock films, um, Dial M for Murder, I think is one of the most brilliant pieces of cinema that I've ever watched, and, I, like, I just love it. Uh, Peeping Tom, though, probably not so much. If I'm thinking of the right title of the film, um, it is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, we were talking about heroes and sympathizing and villains, and he was or kind of... protagonist, yeah, yeah. At least someone who... Someone with a clear, with clear uh, definitive... With a clear definitive outlook, moral outlook, right? Yeah. I mean, 
one of the most interesting characters in film, at least, I mean, you know, recently is Thanos in the Avengers movies. Right. And he has a clear moral arc. And that's why he's so interesting, because he's doing terrible, terrible things. But he's doing what he thinks is, is right, you know. And that that is terrifying at the same time, and yet you can be sympathetic because he's not doing it for any personal gain, right? Right. And so it's, it's like a perfect confluence of what we typically regard as the highest the highest uh, good personal sacrifice right with the highest evil mass murder um, and that's why it's so convincing and the only but they still maintain the, the moral architecture because you have people who are trying to stop him from murdering literally half of the universe so um yeah, some people prefer their villains to be more complicated, but the more complicated the villain, in some ways, the less horrific the film. So, because you can, you know, like I said, you get to explaining why, you know, the person does what the person does. I think that Thomas Harris pulls Hannibal off quite well because, not because you necessarily understand why Hannibal's doing what he does. But rather because he's so charming, you can't help but love him. So, because in some ways he maybe does things to people you would like to do, right? Right. Well, I mean, I don't, gets, I don't necessarily know. I. No, when he gets, he gets multiple megs to swallow his own tongue, you know? Right. Um, you know, not, not that you would do it, but that everybody has a fantasy life, or most people, I think, that they would like to see terrible things happen to people who slight them. Out. <laughs> I think it's an irresistible impulse. Not that you would act on it, not that you would ever fulfill this impulse, but I think that you're better off just letting it go or letting yourself have that thought process and then putting it aside than completely repressing it, right? Mm-hmm. Because repressing things can lead to very terrible outcomes, just like, you know, fully embracing those urges. So. It's almost like the mind requires some kind of equilibrium or a, a safety valve. I used to say that one of the Howard Stern was like our nation's safety valve because he, on a daily basis, would say things that everybody else wanted to say but couldn't get away with saying. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's always a good thing because you have to be able to say the unsayable. Which it's another form of speaking truth to power in some way. Because any any authority that doesn't countenance disagreement, in some ways, is an affront to the truth. Because if you actually believe the truth has to be arrived at at some kind through some kind of intellectual process, and you shut that down, then you're no longer the good guy. You're a tyrant. It's, I don't know who came up with the expression. Maybe it was Voltaire. Um, Error has no rights, you know. If, if you're wrong, we're just going to persecute you or imprison you or kill you because we already know what's right, right? Yeah, kind of like the, making a lady wear an A for adultery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're very good at that. We Americans want to put everybody on some kind of watch list. Like a blast. Yeah, a blast, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, on, put them on blast. I don't know. 
Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Um, and I think we've always been that way. You know, the, there's a reason the Puritans got kicked out of England, you know, because they were intolerable. And they came over here, and we still have that their, their prejudices, I think, in our in our culture. I, I like to say there's a famous book by Max Faber, the guy who was the father of sociology, called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. I think he wrote it in, like, 1880. And I read it in college, in translation. And he said that, you know, the, 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 reformed, the reformed sects of Christianity who followed John Calvin, let's say, believed that in absolute predestination, they believed that there, you had no control over whether or not God sent you to heaven or hell. You were already, you were saved or damned from the moment of birth. And... So they were, co- you know, even though they believed this, they were constantly anxious to know which, which they were, right? How could you not be? So Weber's theory was that they started looking for prosperity in, in this world as indication of God's favor in the next. And that's why capitalism flourished here in a way it wouldn't necessarily have otherwise, such as in Europe. And people want, are constantly seeking some kind of proof that they're on God's, you know, they're on the, you know, I'll see you in heaven if you make the list. It's just quote R.E.M. You know, they're on the salvation list. And I think that, that, you know, inferring from that, you know, on the flip side, Americans have this tendency to think that if you, if you are a criminal or you're unlucky or you're just not, you know, you're, you're just not doing well in America for whatever reason, you're probably on God's shit list, right? You're going to hell. And in the criminal law context, that means we can do whatever we want to you, you know, because God's already written you off. So, which is really scary. Yeah, you know, with religion and, you know, context, like I think the seven deadly sins have always been... um, really interesting to say the least um because they're derangements of of goods right saint augustine wrote that that sin is a sin is a misordered good right you take something that's good like nutrition and eat it to sustain yourself so you don't die and you you warp it so that you become a glutton you become morbidly obese right or um you know Desire, covetousness, right? You, there's certain. It, it, it's not. It's not wrong to want to, you know, have a, a safe and comfortable life and have the ability to protect yourself from the depredations of the world. But, you know, amassing billions and billions of dollars that you can't possibly do anything with out of greed—that's a sin, right? Mm-hmm. So you take you take certain human things that are necessary for life, like love and and sexual reproduction but if you if it just becomes lust if, if all you're doing is, is gratifying desire all the time then it's it's out of whack right it's it's misordered it's out of sync with what aristotle called the golden mean and i think it's interesting i don't think that saint augustine had access to aristotle maybe he did but they both came up with the same idea that there is a there's a golden mean in life, and 
if you do things to distort the things that inform that, you're, you're not living a well-ordered life. Yeah, I just, um, I mean, you're quoting, like, all these things, and I feel like I'm <laughs> dumb because I've never heard of them, and it's just making me, no, like, it, really, like, okay. dive deep into the back of my brain. Like I spent nine years in university, for better and for worse, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to college for, like, two years, so um, I actually, I, if, if I was going to continue, I was going to go to law school, because, um, like I said, it's one of the things that um, has just really triggered me into, I don't know, like, I'm one of those people that wants jury duty, <laughs> and um, everybody else around me gets it, and I've never been selected, I, I don't I just really want to, like, determine an outcome. Um, like, I got divorced, and you're probably going to think, like, I'm crazy, but, like, I was, like, I was more enthralled in the process of what was going on than actually, like, giving two craps about, like, the divorce. <laughs> like, I was just happy to be, like, in a courtroom setting. Well, yeah, if you love the process, you have to love the process to be a good lawyer. Even if you're really smart, even if you're hardworking. If you don't love the process, gradually... It become disenchanted and it eats away at you because people are unnecessarily disputatious once they get into a, a litigation posture and you know they dehumanize one another and they do and say terrible things because it's all about winning right right there's a story i heard one of my colleagues told me this there was litigation in i think in the superior court in california in los angeles and it was a, it was a civil matter and the day before trial, or the night before trial was to begin, the lead counsel on one side died of a heart attack. And the next morning, the client asked for a continuance so that he could retain a different lawyer, his lawyer being dead. And the, the opposing counsel opposed this request, you know, which is really funny why it's kind of foolish because that's not a good way to get the judge on your side. Uh, but it's you know, it's ghoulish, and that's you know I've seen I've seen what can happen if, once you get into that posture. You know, you it's all it's all about the client, and you know you, you do everything legal and ethical on behalf of your client. And if that happens to do mean terrible things for the other side, then so be it. Right? In fact, some people would argue that it's unethical not to do all that. Right. Mm -hmm. Your absolute duty to, is to your client. So, and, you know, the bad news is, is that Americans, because our culture is one of people alienated from one another, go to the courts way too much. And so, you know, it's, it's just like a constant kind of low, slow-going civil war. And it's not healthy, ultimately. I, mean, that, I guess that's what happens when you have a when you have a society that's constantly in churn with people immigrating and different cultures mashing together. And, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a wonderful modern functional thing, but in other ways, because it, it's inorganic, it leads to all kinds of um, bad feelings that people can't resolve except through litigation. So and I, I guess I guess I would think long and hard about going to law school because they're they're already too too many lawyers. So. Oh um, well, I, I think that ship has probably sailed for me. <laughs> oh okay. So I'll I'll take serving on jury duty, but. <laughs> yeah. And I, I tend to think that you 
know, I was able, the thing I was grateful about being a lawyer is that occasionally I was able to really help somebody in a profound, material way. And that, that's extraordinarily gratifying. But there are other jobs where you can do that without having to be a lawyer. So, um, yeah, no, I think um, it's really cool. And um, you're very informative. And, you know, I think with your past and your writing, um, it is clear that, you know, you have a passion for what you did in the past and what you're doing now. Yeah, but the thing about practicing law, criminal law and civil rights law especially, was I saw continual affronts to human dignity, the basic human dignity of people. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is just about, that is the essence of horror, right? That something terrible will happen to you and it will completely obliterate your your dignity, your integrity as a human being. And you can't control it. And it's one thing if some maniac jumps out of a bush and does that to you. I mean, what can you do, right? You live on Earth and nothing is guaranteed. But it's much more terrifying when a system does it to you and people are cheering alongside of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's also scary when the system does it in a way that is not overt, right? It's not like, oh, we're going to chop the heads of our enemies, our political enemies off and put them on pikes to warn other people not to oppose us. That's one thing. It's horrifying, but it's it's out in the open. One of the stories I wrote, Everybody Comes First, is it investigates the way government health care could be turned against patients, not through death panels per se, but by encouraging patients to forego treatment so that they can basically bribe patients out of out of accepting treatment, giving them a cash payout, which then their heirs can try to claim so that their heirs or their family can force them or, or needle them into not being treated so that they can get the money, which the, uh, which the, the, the sick people aren't going to be able to use anyway because they're, they're going to die soon. And so, you know, one day I was thinking, you know, you know if, you were, if you were asked in a you know, really blunt way, do you want sick, do you want to, 18 more months of grandma sick, or do you want, say, five vacations to Disneyland? Which do you choose, right? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I think that, you know, even though they might not admit it, a, a large minority of Americans would choose Disneyland. So, and they would find some way of rationalizing it by saying, well, grandma's going to be in pain, and she doesn't have quality, quality of life, and, you know. They try to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, come on, Grandma, you've had your day. Well, and then there's, well, see, I used to work in um, death claim benefits, uh, so like life insurance, uh, death benefits, um, and like. Just like uh, Edward Norton in um, in uh, Fight Club, right? Yeah. Um, I. It's been a long time since I've seen Fight Club. I, I, I've only seen it the once because I just didn't want to ruin you know, um, there's some perfect films out there, and I just remember really, really loving it. Um, yeah. And I think he was a death claims adjuster for an insurance Was he? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I used to do. I used to pay out um, death benefits, and it was not a rewarding job. Um, it, 
really depressed me, actually. Um, people would call, like, as soon as, like, their significant other or parent died, um, like, the day of, like, probably not even, like, an hour after, just uh, calling in to claim that check. And, I mean, obviously they didn't know the process that you have to obviously send in the death certificate, and there's a lot of paperwork involved. But they wanted... And I guess most of them were, like, just motivated not by... Not by um, grinding poverty, but by greed. By greed, one hundred percent. They didn't. I mean, the their, the person that had the you know the policy, um, they hadn't even been dead for probably twenty minutes. Some of these times, and yeah, you know, I was because you ask like time of death, date of death, um, and they have to tell you, and I'm just like, wow, like this is not this would not be the first thing that's on my mind. Like, Did your talons get cold gripped around that, that safety rail on the hospital bed? <laughs> like, like the, it's like people are just, like, waiting for them to die. And it, it's really sad and unfortunate. And then you would have some people call in because they didn't know that their significant other had a policy. And you could see the relief that it brought them much later. Um, but for the majority, people were calling in, like, right away. And it was really sad. And... Did they not value this person's life? Did they not value their time with them that they were just waiting for this money? And I don't know. I just couldn't do it anymore. And yeah. So. Did you have to watch Double Indemnity as part of your uh, training? No, no. That's also. It's not, it might be the greatest noir film ever made. What's but it called? It's also Double Indemnity. Double. It was. Uh, it was written, the screenplay was written by Raymond Chandler. I think it was directed by Billy Wilder, but I'm not, I might be wrong. Is this an that. older film? Yeah, it came out in 1946. It was Fred McMurray and, oh, what was her name, the actress? It, the name escapes me, but it's about this insurance salesman played by Fred McMurray who gets conned into murdering this rich woman's husband so that they can... They take out a double indemnity insurance policy on them so they can, it's double payout in case of death. And Fred McMurray murders the husband, but everything goes south after that. And Robert Stanwyck, that's the actress who played his paramour. And there's, there's a scene, one of my friends pointed it out to me, that there's a scene where when Fred McMurray murders the husband, Barbara Stanwyck, the wife and, and adulteress, is sitting at the wheel of the car and you can't see Fred McMurray murder the husband. It's in the back seat. It's out of the shot, but she's smiling, you know, and it's in many ways, it's one of the most terrifying scenes in cinema history. I'm going to have to check this one out. Yeah. It doesn't show anything, but it's as scary as anything that shows something. It, it reminds me, there's a scene in this John Wayne film about PT, PT boats in, I think it was the Philippines in World War II. And Donna Reed plays his, his love interest. She's a nurse at the military hospital. And there's a scene where, where a soldier is being operated on. And you don't see any of the operation. The only thing you see is her expressions throughout the operation. You can tell by her expressions how terrible the injuries are. You know, that's something else that's, that's interesting and true, that... You need some rules to play by when you're telling stories or else 
you know, you can just do whatever you want. And art dies. I don't know who said this, but art without boundaries, you know, ultimately falls apart. Because you have to have some kind of standard against which to operate or else, you know, yeah, it, it's a mess. And the greatest, arguably the greatest artists in, in modern art, people like Picasso or T.S. Eliot, were able to get away with it because they were able to create their own systems of rules, which they then follow. But most people aren't smart enough to do that. And so they end up making something that's just not that interesting. Um, and I remember years ago, I saw this, this woman who, who was a famous boudoir photographer. She was a, she was a photographer for, I think, Hustler Magazine. And she was talking about the fact that eventually, once the, once the publishers like Larry Flint had vanquished the moral majority who was trying, which, who were trying to get them banned, that there were no things to bump up against. There were, there were no standards to, to trounce. And she said it just became, once you could do anything you wanted, it wasn't interesting. So, you know, you can take a lot from that. So once everything is permitted, it's not that interesting. And horror needs, in some ways, to be able to, <clears throat> at least some types of horror, have, has to be able to bump up against some kind of indelible or enduring version of reality in order to have meaning. So, for example, if, you know, like I said, if you don't have a good guy and a bad guy, I mean, you, you have a horror movie in some ways, but it's just not that interesting. It's just sort of pornographically gratuitous violence. Um, and so your horror movies depend upon an, an, a moral order, a presumption of a moral order in order to be horrifying. Otherwise, it's just pure self-interest, like, I don't want to be eaten by the tiger, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to be eaten by the tiger, it's terrifying. Okay, but how do you write a story based on that, right? You know, I mean, you can, but it, you can't really go that far with it, so. And some people would say that if, if you know, if you don't, if there is no moral order, then what right do you have to resist being eaten by the tiger, right? So <laughs> exactly, the tiger's the good guy. How dare you? How dare you try to flout the the interests of the good guy? So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's always interesting. One of the most interesting things about horror is the the values that are implied in what you're seeing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, the Purge movies are interesting in this respect because, you know, there's an idea in society that, you know, would things really be better if we simply could murder people we didn't like one day a year? Right? <laughs> would, would things suddenly be better? I I don't accept that, but I think that the the directors of those films or the the producers realize that, and so that's why they turn, you know, they turn it into a meditation on <clears throat> rich versus poor and powerful versus weak, mm -hmm. because it would become, as it does in the films, it becomes a way for the rich to exterminate everyone who might be on government assistance, you know, under, yeah. under color of law, right? And of course your society is going to be more better off if you don't have to worry about millions and millions of people who can't help themselves, right? Mm -hmm. We're all going to be richer and happier, you know? The rich so, get richer and the poor die. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's like, 
it's it's one of the other things that's people wanting to have genetically altered or uh, gene edited babies, right? So there, there's a systematic there's a systematic control of, of children who are born, and because laws permit it, some parents just if they if they find out that their child isn't going to, have, for example, be the right sex, they will just abort it, right? Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, idea that people have perfect control over what another person should be, and if, if that if that control isn't isn't able to be fully exercised, then you kill the child and try again. That's also terrifying. So, well, that's a disgusting uh, supermarketed death. Yeah. <laughs> It really is. Um, I do want to talk about your book. Um, you know, sorry to change no, subjects okay. here. Um, You're in charge. <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I like to think I am, but I'm not. Um, no, um, I don't want to like give away the whole book, but there were certain stories that really stuck out to me personally. So, is it all right if we talk about a couple of yeah, them? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Um, so one that, like, I, I read it, a, this, um, I broke it up into segments because of reading it, because um, some of it is really heavy, you know, um, and kudos to you to be able to, you know, be able to switch variations of horror um, into these stories. Um, you know, it didn't feel like I was reading, um, it, it almost at times it felt like it was a different person writing the story because they were so vastly different from one story to the next. And that's really talented and I respect it. Thank you. Um, one story that like really, really stuck out with me, um, I'm probably saying it wrong, Rigor Mortis? Um, Rigor Mortis. Which story was that? I'm sorry. Um, Aris... Gratia Mortis, like, uh, I can't, yeah, oh, yeah. I Ars can't, gra- gratia <clears throat> Mortis, yes. art for the sake of death, is that what that means, it, yeah, it's Latin, it means, the, the, if you look at the MGM, uh, Metro Golden Mare, uh, corporate symbol, mm-hmm. it says, Ars Gratia Mortis, Ars Gratia Artis, and I, I think it's a, it might be taken from the ancient Roman poet Horace, I tell us, I don't know which one, might not be, but it means art for art's sake, right? Mm-hmm. That art in and of itself is something that has its own meaning and, and independent value, and that's one of the reasons it's so great. And so I, I did a play on words, you know, art for the, you know, art for the sake of death. See, I can so. read, I just can't necessarily pronounce sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Um, no, but the ending of this particular story, I don't know why, but it just really, really stuck with me. And, um, like, I I feel like this could actually be, like, a movie or, you know, part of an anthology TV show segment. Um, it was that good to me. Because um, I, I did not see the ending coming. Like, sometimes, you know, when you're reading, you can, oh, this is where it's going. This one, I didn't see that coming, like, at all. And I was just like, no. <laughs> like, I don't want to spoil it because I want people to read it. Um, one of the, one of, there's a very famous screenwriter named William Goldman. And I think he was the guy who said that one of the jobs of telling a good story is to give the audience what it wants, but in a way they don't expect it. Mm-hmm. And that is 
one of my cardinal rules. If at all possible, I try to give the people what they want, the outcome they want, but in a way that they're still being surprised by it. I do notice you do like an unhappy ending, but at the same time, like, they're a little comical. Um, yes, like EC Comics. Yes, <laughs> like, kind of like the Tales from the Crypt endings. Um, like, sometimes they end a little bit happy, um, and other times they just end up really, like, messed up. <laughs> One of my favorite EC Comics stories was, they did a series, you probably read them, they did a series of satires of Grimm's fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And they did a version of Hansel and Gretel. At the end of their version of Hansel and Gretel, the kids go into the oven anyway. And the witch, in the last panel, is they break the fourth wall. The witch address, addresses the reader and says, you didn't think the kids were going to escape in this, did you? This is an EC magazine, right? <laughs> Which, in many ways, was as delightful and entertaining and satisfying as the original ending. So... Well, um, yeah. Because no, if I, you're going to if you're going to put children in an oven to eat them, you have to do it with some panache, right? You have I, to make it amusing to the viewer. It's, Otherwise, it's just like terrifying and horrible. Well, I did just rewatch um, God, uh, Tales from the Dark Side, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the, it's kind of like a Hansel and Gretel wraparound story with the young Matthew Lawrence and I'm trying to remember who plays the. The one that's trying to cook him, but you know that's what I first think of is, um, um, I was thinking that it was probably going to go in that direction because all the other stories kind of ended, you know, not so happy in that branch or in that anthology, but that one did. So it was a little disappointing, I think. That he, he... I haven't seen I haven't seen that movie since nineteen ninety two. So the only thing I remember is the story with Radon Chong. You know, never ask where I came from or something like that. Oh, it's know. so sad. It's so sad. I know. I know. Oh, like, it, it's, like, kind of soul-crushing. Like, I, I just did it for a commentary and uh, just rewatching it. Like, you have so much more appreciation when you're doing commentaries, I think, on them than just when you're just popping it in. Uh, you don't realize how emotional, like, cinema can make you. And I'm, I'm talking about getting emotional from Tales from the Dark Side, so what does that tell you? <laughs> um... Yeah, no, the, the ending of that. So, um, endings are huge for me. Like, I think endings make or break for me a film or a story. I tend to agree. In fact, if you don't know the ending of something, once you start writing it, then you failed already. So. Yeah, no. I mean, like... you, can still, you can still recover. You can still figure it out. But if you don't know the ending, then, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, like, if it doesn't tie it up, like, um, you know, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to tie it up in a pretty bow, but at least make yeah. me entertained by it. I mean, I guess that you could, I remember as a kid, there were these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Yes. And there were multiple <laughs> endings. And, you know, it was very postmodern. The Vampire Express. If you're, <laughs> if you're looking for kind of a postmodern string theory, Rick and Morty, infinite universes kind of thing, then then yeah, that might work. But the thing is, is that you still have to make it organically interesting and satisfying within the context of the story. It can't just be some random flip of a coin, whether someone lives or dies, in my opinion. And otherwise, the story just isn't that well put together. Well, so. 
Well, another one of your stories that um, I was really intrigued by was the ice cream man. I think that's probably one that I had the most fun with. Um, yeah, the, the, the OCD story. Yes, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I could see that one being made. I could see all of these being made, but some of them just stood out a little bit more in my head of what I would like to see, you know, transpire. Um, you know, you can picture, like, actors playing the ice cream man. And, um, well, I, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Oh. And that story was my attempt to sort of translate the experience of it, you know, obviously in arch-comical horror terms, mm-hmm. um, into something that someone without it could appreciate, right? Right. One of the best examples of it in entertainment was Jack Nicholson's character in As Good As It Gets, Melvin Udall, you know, or Adrian Monk in Monk, but, you know, those guys don't kill anybody, and I was thinking, how funny would it be if you had a comedy of errors that results in lots of people being murdered, right? So, well, and the order, the way that it happened and the ending of it, like, it's bittersweet. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, it's it was one of my favorites, and it stood out. So, um, you know, the mailman, and um, I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. Yeah, because the, the OCD, it's an insatiable beast, and no matter how much you feed it, it always wants more. It's like an addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, you, you just have to, you just, it's, in some ways you just have to, you know, put up the shield of reason and ignore it. And eventually it will be, it will, it will retreat. But if you keep fighting it, you know, it's like the hydra. You cut off one head and two more appear. So, and that's what happens to the poor protagonist in, in that story. Yeah, no, like it's so, like, I think talking to you, you know, and you explaining like your reasoning behind the story it changes it a little bit but it doesn't make it any less enjoyable if that makes sense like it's just really interesting to see where the take of it came from and most of my process is i I love almost all kinds of horror films um yeah the, the least interesting to me probably is the creature feature but even that that can be great. One of the best horror stories ever was Stephen King's short story in Creepshow, The Crate. Yes. Um, <laughs> not because, I mean, the creature's fine, but what's really interesting is what, what it causes people to do, right? What it causes Hal Holbrook to do. It's like, oh, I can finally get rid of my horrifying life, right? Adrienne Barba. And what's even funnier is that, um, is that, you know, the, the, the way he threads the plot around so that you know this terrible thing happens at this university and three people are dead or two people and you know Hal Holbrook's response is not is not oh my god well we have to call the police and do something it's like I'm gonna get rid of my wife you know which is you know the the logic of a horror movie it's fantastic (laughs) so you know it really depends I mean have the right kind of creature feature it works really well like there's this fantastic horror film from the 70s called kingdom of the spiders with william shatner and i saw that as a kid and it i still haven't recovered from it uh it is so terrifying it, it contributes to my arachnophobia um and you know it's about this 
it's about this Arizona town that gets overrun with mutated tarantulas that are utterly lethal. Because in real life, tarantulas don't aren't really harmful to people. And in this movie, they are. And there's this terrifying scene where this farmer's house storms out of the barn and is covered with these tarantulas, you know. And it kills the cat. They kill the cat. And so, yeah. So, Jaws is a very effective creature feature, right? Mm -hmm. Just some, you know, gigantic monster that that terrorizes a town. Yeah, that, that doesn't do it for me. So... Well, and then... Unless the town has it coming. So, God, God help me, I always root for, for the dinosaurs in uh, Jurassic Park. I want to see them eat all of the people. <laughs> you like that unhappy ending. And then the... I see that as a happy ending. And that's what's probably <laughs> well, the they weren't good people. Right. So, um, the last story that I wanted to talk to you about um, is, obviously I said I really like courtroom stuff. So due process really stuck out to me. Um, and, you know, the disciplinary aspect of it. Um, was this inspired by, you know, you, your career? Not exactly. It was more inspired by some teachers I had over the years who enjoyed a sadistic, being sadistic with their power. You know, I, I ran into teachers who would, didn't matter if you were right or wrong. All that mattered was they were in power and you weren't, right? Mm-hmm. They thought they were doing you a favor by irrationally uh, demanding things from you. Like you can't go to recess till you eat all your green beans. <laughs> Not even that. Like just utterly, you know, utterly irrational power grabs. And it doesn't matter if you're right. We're in charge. F you. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering, you know, I was thinking, I actually had teachers... I remember I was in school once, and they, you know, they use these military tactics. If one person, if one person screwed up, everybody had to be punished. That's the way the military functions, and it's what leads to blanket parties, for example, and code reds. And so I remember one day in gym class in, in middle school. Uh, one of my friends did something, and so instead of playing dodgeball in gym, we all had to run laps. And I castigated him in gym, right? And which is the logic of the military, right? You want internal discipline. You want people to look out for and discipline one another so that there is unit cohesion, right? But after, you know, after school or after class, I was dragged out by these two teachers and said, that I was wrong to castigate this person, you know, so they wanted it both ways. They wanted you to suffer, but they also suffer for things you didn't do, but they also didn't want you to, to do the logical thing and say, please don't do this again. Right. To the person who did it. And it was, you know, at the end it was just all about power. And so I was thinking, what would kids do in this situation? If, you know, if you really amped it up, Mm-hmm. And it goes back to this idea, well, if we have due process, then we can do whatever we want, you know, because we, we follow, you know, we were fair, you know, and so that's, you know, I thought, what, what would happen if, if kids did this? There's this really great, and this must have been in the back of my mind, there was this great, I think it was Tales from the Crypt, it was either Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunted Fear, 
a cover which shows these kids walking through a neighborhood in you know this semi-rural neighborhood and they're pallbearers of this impromptu coffin and it's like what are these kids carrying this coffin for what's in the coffin and the neighbors are all like what the hell is going on you know it's a brilliant cover <laughs> and, and it's like well here's here's an answer to what might be in the coffin so and right the person got there so well, Jim, you have been so fascinating to talk to. Um, you can get your book on Amazon. And yeah. Is there and any- the, both, both my uh, Discussing Supermarket of Death and my graphic novel, Stay Alive, are available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble and other bookstores. And I am happy to s- – I will send you a hard copy of – Stay alive. I think you'll, if you enjoyed a disgusting supermarket of death, you'll enjoy it. Um, in some ways, they are, I wouldn't say they're counterpieces, but they, they come from the same period of time in which I was really working out what I thought horror should look like. So if you like one, you're going to like the other. Yeah, well, we can definitely do a whole other episode uh, after I get that one, if you'd like. Awesome. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like it's you're very fascinating and intriguing, and I need more adverbs. <laughs> um, so moving but that's on. that's something you're supposed to avoid in writing, right? You have to get you have to get rid of adverbs. Oh, is that what that? I, <laughs> I love adverbs, so you know I, you know I write the I write what I think is the best way to tell a story, and if people like it, great. If they don't like it, you know, so be it. So well, I know, it's not like. I'm trying to write dactylic hexameters or something, and there's an actual syllable count and rhyme scheme I have to follow. So, <laughs> Well, I definitely think that um, if I enjoyed this book, I think a lot of my listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Um, I did promote it uh, after I finished it a while back, um, and I'm definitely going to do that again. Thank you. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. Like I said, there's a bunch of different um, variation of horror in it. A little something for everybody. And, yeah, do you have anything else coming up that you'd like to promote or anything you're working on? I'm working on a series of novellas. Um, they're, one of them actually is a creature feature called Cat Problem about uh, weaponized cats that the government the government six upon a small town in Colorado that has a massive feral cat population. It's their claim to fame. And these weaponized cats all have a feline-specific rabies virus in them, and it turns them into rapacious killers of every living thing or every every animal or person they see. And, and they, the military exploits this feral cat population as a test. Um, and it, it's a horror comedy. And the other two, one of them is is about a malicious cult leader, and the other is about a guy who who is a psychotherapist for ghosts. And his main client is his recently departed wife. So, and it's, you know, it's, it's a horror story, but it's also sort of a meditation upon life, death, and, you know, what people value and why. Well, I'm excited to check those out. It was such a pleasure having you on. Um, I definitely want to have you come back. 
And thank you again, Jim. Um, where can the listeners follow you or find you on social media? Okay, on Instagram, it's StayAliveGN, just one word, all lowercase. And on Twitter, it is Stay at Novel Stay, one word with a capital N and a capital S. And it's a discussing supermarket of death slash stay alive. Awesome. Um, I just want to thank you again so much for joining me. I can't wait to have you back, and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for this opportunity.